content warning for suicide, death, sexual content, and sexual assault. Hello and welcome to the Billy Sears Club. I'm Caleb Clark. And I'm Eric Rigg. Today we've got two lovely elms for you folks. Little Earthquakes by Tori Amos and Big Fish Theory by Vince Staples. So Eric, tell us, why can't Tori read? Well, okay, we're going to start on the uh, little side of our big little dichotomy we have today with Tori Amos and her album Little Earthquakes. So this prodigious musician born Myra Ellen Amos in Newton, North Carolina, was raised in the D.C. area. And she's gone by Tori since she was told by a friend that she looked like a Tory pine. So interesting little tidbit. She's a child of a Methodist minister and also has Cherokee roots on her mother's side, which um, really has influenced her multifaceted view of spirituality, as I think we're going to see throughout this album. Um, and she's a classically trained musician, proficient in piano, harpsichord, and Hammond organ. She became the youngest student admitted to the Johns Hopkins University Peabody Institute Conservatory at age five. But she was kicked out at age 11 ostensibly due to musical insubordination. She says her love of rock and pop music combined with a dislike of sight-reading sheet music was the real cause for this. Musical insubordination is a thing? I, well, I guess that's how it goes at the conservatory. You gotta behave or you get kicked out. It's really unfortunate. But, um, <clears throat> however, she continued to write and record music regularly as a teenager, and by later adolescence, her father helped her by regularly sending demo takes to record labels and producers while she performed at piano bars. And this caught the attention of Atlantic Records, who took notice and signed her in 1983 after which she moved to L.A. to start her professional career, forming a synth-pop group called Why Can't Tori Read? As we talked about earlier, um, their self-titled album had a difficult, complicated writing and recording process and was a total flop when it came out in 1988, causing Atlantic to abandon promoting it just after two months. So, similar kind of thing that Alanis Morissette did, which I found was kind of interesting. They went the synth-pop route before they blossomed. Ugh. But anyway, Tori had to fulfill her six-record deal with Atlantic, which brings us to today's album, Little Earthquakes. Tori retreated to Capitol Record Studios and wrote and composed 12 songs with her producer, David Sigerson. These included Crucify, Happy Phantom, Leather, and Winter, amongst several others that didn't make the final cut. Atlantic was unhappy with this initial offering, though, and they reportedly want her to cut the pianos entirely, amongst other things, which obviously... Piano being her specialty, she wasn't having that. So she ended up going back to the studio with her then-boyfriend, producer Eric Ross, to cut several more tracks, including Girl, Precious Things, Tear in Your Hand, Mother, and Little Earthquakes. She did some further work in the UK where she recorded the song Me and a Gun, which was the song that really got the Atlantic executives' attention and really got them on board with her project. So... When the album was finally released after months and years of production hell on January 6, 1992 in the UK, it achieved moderate chart success, but it truly took off a month later with its US release in February. And here in the US, it achieved critical acclaim and a cult fan base that's still pretty strong to this day. So it's a really interesting album. You know, the instrumentation is really rich. Her roots as a classically trained musician definitely shine through, and she's a very skilled pianist. And lyrically, she is rather abstruse, but she talks about some really interesting themes head on. 
themes relating to religious guilt as a lens to interpret personal experience, you know, self-hatred, childhood trauma, lost opportunities, and failed romantic relationships, not to mention existential anxieties in her relationship to a patriarchal society. There's a lot to dive into, and it's all very complex and sort of difficult to parse out. So, yeah, what are your thoughts, though, Caleb? What do you think? Yeah, for overall, pretty similar line. You know, it was a bit indecipherable about 60% of the time. The other 40% of the time, like, she's an excellent writer. And like you say, like, she's got the great piano style, and she's got, like, that sort of that very emotive over the top way of singing, but not like super over, not over the top in a bad way, in a good way that like really gets across the mood of song. So even though I didn't understand most of it, I did at least get the feel, you know, and like really flash onto something. You know, I, I definitely do think Tori is an acquired taste. You know, if you spend a lot of time with the music, you end up kind of standing and so there, there isn't really a track on this album that I've uh, really strongly disliked. You know, I've, I've, I've connected to with it more and more. And she's, she's definitely one to watch and uh, do a discography deep dive on if you have the chance. But anyway, we're here with her debut. So where should we start? Um, hmm. How about the start? Yeah, at the very beginning. It's a very good place. So oh, yeah, cr- Crucify. She gives us a real strong uh, opening salvo, Crucify, which I think is one of the statement pieces of the album. It definitely has one of the catchiest vocal melody. Um, By the way, crucify yeah. ourselves. That was a good Chains, that part. I'm just like, ugh, that gets me every time. Yeah, no, it's it's very cleanly instrumented, um, has a bare mixing and arrangement with Tori's clear voice soaring over those pianos and guitars and drums. It gives a confessional feel, much like the rest of the album. And I think it's like probably, if not the most conventional pop song on the album, definitely one of them. Um, you see her, um, you know, confronting these themes of rejection, seeking approval, come, overcoming self-imposed victimhood and internalized self-hatred. The song's kind of a rumination on the self-crucifixion that happens, so, so to speak, when you bend over backwards to gain the approval of others. Um, and there's definitely a lot of religious imagery being worked through here. You know, she sings that she's got enough guilt to start her own religion, which apparently was a line that was censored in many radio broadcasts of the song and got her banned from radio stations in the Bible Belt. So you go, censored queen. Um, cancel culture it's healthy. right and it's saying Tori Amos can't have her own religion totally no totally um yeah it's it's also a song about her refusal to see herself as a victim because she releases the she realizes the toxic cycle she's gotten in, herself into and has a desire to escape her heart is sick of being in chains yeah, anyway what are your thoughts on this one yeah uh let's see i would say first oh being less experienced and probably a bit more literal minded. I went, I went for like the, your interpretation, I guess that's, you know, about like, you know, condemnation and finding solace, you know, and like, but yeah, it has that very grim, dire spiritualist aesthetic. Cause you know, she also mentions that she like got a cat named Easter uh-huh. at one point. Then like, like, right. like you said, like to be Jesus Christ, apparently. 
Yeah, and then... I and would then, be so dead on this album without Genius and without, like, lyrical <laughs> annotation websites. Yeah, I decided to just push through instead because I... I've, I'm, I'm not, I don't get the time, but yeah. But yeah Nothing that, wrong with that. I just yeah. need to know all the background. But that does make sense with the cat named Easter representing Jesus because it like tells her like while she's dealing with all the, you know, all the judgment and all the pain inflicted, it, the cat's just like, when are you ever going to learn? You know, it's like that sort of, like, you know, it's that weird slight tension in the relationship where, becomes the symbol of a lot of the religious side of the condemnation, but is also still trying to comfort her. But really, like you say, like the main thing is just, you know, her, you know, very earnest vocals, deep piano, you know, it's just very cool. It all comes together almost kind of like, um, like one of those classic worship songs. It feels like, you know, I, I definitely enjoy this one. It's, it's been on repeat quite a bit. Um, yeah, and you know that through line of just religious imagery and her coming to terms with the like guilt and things that had been beaten into her growing up, I suppose, definitely continues in a lot of different songs here. Um, you know, one I was really thinking about that also goes very hard was "Precious Things," which is kind of her epic bodily autonomy and sexual liberation anthem. There's a lot of layers to that one. Precious Things is that's one I was completely lost on, but just the sheer intensity of the sound, where you know she's just doing those big old riffs, and there's the guitar, and she was just basically screaming out, and basically goes into a early Alanis Morissette before Jagged Little Pill with the yeah. Like, which is a totally intentional allusion to Nine Inch Nails, by the way. She ended up becoming friends with Reznor as a result. <laughs> and they collaborated. So, yeah. There's another song she has later on, I think, from her third album, where she says something about a pretty hate machine. So she she's definitely loves her Easter eggs, her lyrical Easter eggs. But, yeah, um... No, it's it, it's this. This is a really interesting one. It definitely goes pretty hard. It's a baroque pop rock jam, I guess is what I'd call it. And um, yeah, it's she's recovering her sense of female self-expression, which kind of in the vein of some of Alanis's angrier bops, like you ought to know. Um, I really appreciated the line about pining after the boy who negged her. Um, kind of giving way into this rage. She wants to smash the faces of those beautiful boys, those Christian boys, which is just, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, There's a lot of purge frustration being purged in this one. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I've also wanted to smash some faces occasionally. That would be, oh, that totally. would be less... This is one of her more explicit, um, I guess, for more explicit examples of her wrestling with her anger here. But yeah. Speaking of explicit, uh, there she is staying naked. Uh, don't you want her for, for more than her sex? Oh, was uh, that your leather. favorite one? I, I heard that That's was your a, favorite. Yeah, leather is up there for me. We'll, we'll get into what exactly is my favorite, but yeah, leather is 
this as far as explicit material and ones that, you know, have the imagery, but also a bit more clear meaning. That was really up there for me. It feels... Right. The, and it's like it's deeper than it appears at first glance too because leather is kind of more of a humorous dark rumination song about like a relationship with a man who's using her and doesn't love her but it's still humorous yeah yeah like there's all the stuff there's the you know a deep-seated sense of you know sexual misgiving and relationship miscommunication but also there's like freudian smoking angels and it's all sung like a show tune so it's right like, you know, well, I guess cabaret. Right. It's a cabaret song more than a show, but you know. Yeah, it's cabaret, jazz inspired. It's definitely not the conventional pop song. Is not yeah. what you're going to see here. Yeah, no, there's like a bit of wryness there. Like, okay, let's just go along with it. Hand me my leather. But that's just like belies her actual need for vulnerability and companionship, which she keeps second guessing. So, yeah, I know. I love the lyrical play going on here as well. This one should have been a single, Justice for Leather. Yeah. Well, I mean, it would it would be hard to sell as a single because, like, that's the thing with how, like, very explicit it is about, like, the, you know, mm -hmm. the sensual side of the relationship and how the emptiness of the emotional side. I know. Uh, and that, that would be hard to get on radio. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, and that was Whitney Houston's I Will love, Always Love You. Up next, we got a kinky little number about <laughs> when your boyfriend never. doesn't listen to you yeah. while you bang. I, I don't know. I think it would have gone number one, personally. Uh, let's see. Well, my personal number one from this album, if, we're, if we want to get into favorites, um, definitely Winter, which was the album's fourth single. And it's a very slow, contemplative kind of ballad, which reminisces on Tori's relationship with her father. She contemplates, and she kind of contemplates the difficulties and existential pressures of getting older. So, yeah, Winter is also definitely a perennial favorite in the Tori fandom. So, how did you feel about this one? Well, first, I would like to say that this is the, really probably the first Tori Amos song I ever really heard about because I was reading a book by hardcore wrestler Mick Foley, a.k.a. Mankind, Dude Love, a.k.a. Cactus Jack. He was talking about how this was actually a song that, like, got him into a space of confidence before a few of his big matches, and actually he's a huge fan of Tori Amos, oh, yeah. and, the, like, does work for the, the Rain Network for uh, sexual assault survivors that she was the spokesperson for. Yes. Like, and so, like, that's super cool of him, and, like, that's my personal connection. But, yeah, Winter's, I think it's the overall best song on the album. Like it's just, just got that very delicate piano style and the beautiful scene setting she does with, you know, her playing as a child in the winter day and the, her father, you know, sort of being, you know, so perishing. And then the imagery of as the winter transitions out into like spring and she's coming into maturity, but she so seeking out the relationship with her father. It's just a really sweet family song. I'm I'm a sucker for songs about having a good relationship with your parents, like, that's, let's face it, yeah. It's, it's very well-written. It's a lovely one. It's like you're almost pining after something you never got. Ugh. Yeah. Um, In a sense. Wait, I have yeah. a good relationship with my parents. What are you, well, I, I won't, <laughs> let's not get into it. I'm just, I'm just uh, taking out my trauma for the world to see here. Um, but anyway... No, this this really is almost a perfect song, and I definitely agree with you that it's like technically the 
I guess the best produced and composed one here. I just I really really enjoy this one. Everybody gangsta till the chorus hits on this one. Um, it's just simultaneously existential, gut wrenching, but also catchy at the same time. This one also has a really a, a vocal melody that just sticks in your head and just like keeps you coming back, which was kind of surprising. I didn't expect that on the first few listens. Um, yeah, I just I love how existential it is. Um, you know, winter seeming to be a metaphor for childhood and she's waxing nostalgic for it. And that's pretty much the entire song. It's it's nostalgia and her like looking back to that time when she could conjure up, I guess, a sense of magical world and imagination before, you know, time starts slipping through your fingers and um, you grow into adulthood and opportunities close off. So, yeah, she gets deep on this one. And it's also got a really interesting like seasonal imagery because you know with like winter you know everything's covered and still and calm, but you know mm -hmm. given how often the sexual turbulence comes up, you know with spring things snow is melting off, things are uncovered, and also a lot more things are reproducing in the spring. So like that change and her change into adolescence at that point. Yeah, and she's you know it's but it's out there. And also that, thought it was, yeah. I also thought it was interesting how she used winter to represent childhood and that being the starting point of the metaphor there, because usually winter is used to describe old age. So it's kind of flipping that on its head. I don't know. Yeah. For, I will say for like me personally, I have a lot more happy winter childhood memories than summer because, you know, growing up in the, as a kid, like. There would be Christmas, and we get to go up to my grandparents in upstate New York and go sledding mm -hmm. and stuff. So, like, as a personal. And also, I just don't like sweating. Oh, same. Summer's really gross, dude. So, yeah, I, I this is a gorgeous song. And honestly, definitely the best one on the album here, technically. Um, but then she whiplashes into a completely different tone. Um, do you want to speak a little bit about Happy Phantom? I know you said that was also one of your favorites. Yeah, sure. So uh, this song is a cheery num little number, probably about suicide. But yeah, it's mm -hmm. her. Basically, she's got this boppy little piano tune, and she's singing about how, like, if she was a ghost, she would, you know, be going out and playing and having fun all the time and seeing all these deceased celebrities. But like, and it's like you know, all flowing and cheerful and upbeat and very Casper the Ghost. But then, given how often she brings up stuff like be able to chase the nuns, because apparently we're at a religious institution, and how yes, of you course, you wouldn't have to talk about the atrocities of school like that. It's sounding like she's like, and like the time is getting closer time to be a ghost that sounds like she's not a ghost yet and she wants to be a ghost and tori are you okay we know you're not okay because we all heard me with a gun oh gosh tori 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 yeah yeah it's a, it can be a lot once you, but also it's i don't know it's it's a lot oceans right i mean i didn't know if it was necessarily about suicide although i do think it's kind of like striking this frankness with which she talks about the idea of like oh and if i were to die suddenly this is what i'd do and you know this is what being in the afterlife right now would be you know our and oh, every day we're getting closer to death you know every day takes us closer will i pay for who i've been which kind of like doesn't seem to fit with how upbeat the 
song is generally, but I mean, I love that. I love that juxtaposition. I think it works amazingly. Yeah. I look, we've established, we've established time and over again, and you've taken advantage of it with the no doubt album, but I love me some nineties alt women lyrical dissonance. Oh, completely. We did a whole episode about it. Yeah. And if it might not be about suicide, but it's definitely someone who's unhappy in life. Definitely oh, someone completely. who it's a fantasy of of someone who's struggling. Yeah, yeah. So we'll get especially as, especially as you see as she in the like the later verse when she begins regretting dying so she can't be with her loved one and or she just watches as he moves on without her, you know. So it isn't all happy. Yeah. But a lot of it's happy. Right. It's a heck of a fun song with a lot more to it than meets the ears on first listen. Especially that weird twangy, I guess, I think it's a dulcimer. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, she had a lot of interesting um, random instruments on this album. Though mostly she was playing the piano and harpsichord. Speaking of piano and harpsichord, I would like to take a moment to say I'm so glad that she, like, refused to go for a guitar-centered album because, you know, Oh, completely. Was, no, that was, was that. I heard that. I heard her say that in an interview, and that was just shocking to me. Like the piano is pretty much the core of this album. All the really intricate little melodies that yeah. uh, like anchor most of the songs. Like it would be completely different, and it wouldn't have the same energy at all without the piano. Yeah, yeah no, I think a guitar version of this would be okay. But you know, th- with the piano, you know, she's able to, you know, like you say, make it so intricate and honestly so theatrical at times. You know, she's able to play all 88 of those keys and you know really dig in deep where with the guitar you know it's a bit more you know it's a lot of guitar especially for like 90s alternative is a lot more about you know crunch right right into like shoegaze and jazz guitar but those are a lot more cerebral i guess than you can get with a good showy piano this more poppy, I guess not necessarily poppy, but just like a more alternative, like cleanly produced um, Baroque pop kind of feel that Tori's yeah. presenting here. And that really fits for the her whole persona, whereas, you know, more out there in her own world and also especially exemplified by her one song, Oil Spill, as seen on Bob's Burgers. Mm. Well, that was someone else. <laughs> Oh my gosh, you're going to have to send me the link to that one. Yeah, yeah. I'll get on that, I'll get on that. But yeah. Get on it. Piano, piano, raving aside, uh, what other songs are there? I know you mentioned not liking China. Yeah. Well, I think you mentioned liking China, so you go first and then I'll be Mr. Grumps. Okay, well, I mean, I guess it's kind of mid for me. I like it because of its, like, relative simplicity and conventionality, you know, it's... One of the more conventional songs on the album, kind of like Crucify, you know, it's it it's a more conventional sounding ballad for like longing for an emotionally distant partner. And I definitely get some of the feels for it. I mean, I suppose I can see how some of the metaphors might be a bit like cheesy, like about building the Great Wall. But I don't know. It's this. I wouldn't say it's one of my favorites, but I definitely enjoy this one. It was one of the singles. It was released as the third single from the album, although it didn't chart except in the UK. But yeah. It was it was basically that, yeah, it's it's her like show ballad, you know. <laughs> and I You got something against slow ballads? No, a show ballad, like a 
like your uh like her memory basically for from cats. This is her version of cats. It's her uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber slow jam. But uh it's yeah, this is this is fine. Like I do agree the like the distance is nice and there's a line in there about like funny how the distance learns to grow. The double entendres of China, the dishes in China, the country. That's all fine, but like I guess it's just not on the level of all the other ones. Mm. Also, there's moments, like you say, the Great Wall, and also the one riff where she's like, da, 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 da. like that was like, hmm, is this going to get racist? <laughs> but then she dropped it, and it was like, okay, it's not racist. Yeah, no, she she indulges her flights of fancy, doesn't she? Um, Which I wouldn't def- want her not to, but... Yeah, precisely. <laughs> well, it was the 90s. Um, you know, I guess I just don't feel too strongly about this one, but different strokes for different folks. If this showed up on, like, a, like, most, in the, like, pop girls or even a fair number of alt-rock albums, I think it would still be, you know, pretty good. It would still be up in the upper half, but just because, as the flowing of compliments has probably shown, this is a very... Go die hard type. Right. Right. Well, I guess I felt a little less strongly. And it's it's hard for me to choose a track that I don't like, that I like the least, but I guess I feel less strongly about the title track, Little Earthquakes. But even so, I mean there's there's stuff to go on there. I mean, it's a song about sometimes brittle nature of interpersonal relationships. You know, small disagreements can lead to major arguments and and force us to step back and re-evaluate our relationships. You know, it doesn't take much to rip us into pieces. But, yeah, I mean, I guess that that one in particular doesn't do quite as much for me musically. Um, but, yeah, pretty much everywhere you look here, you mostly get some so- something of substance to chew on, I guess. The first little earthquakes, it, I, was, I was a bit distracted because of a thing that happened before that we'll probably get to, but... It's 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 pretty all right. Uh, the some of the piano lines are good, and like the part where it's like "Give me life, give me pain," that was cool. Right, yeah. anthemic. Yeah. Um, I guess we should probably address the elephant in the room then, because I mean, the little earthquakes. It's a fine track, but there, the one immediately preceding it on the track list is definitely Tori's breakout single. It was the first single released from the album called Me and a Gun. And this one is captivating, but also very hard to listen to um, because it's an acapella track and it has the most raw arrangement of them all. And so yeah, this was reportedly the song that snapped Atlantic executives to their senses and got them on board with Tori's project before releasing it as her debut single three months prior to the album. It's about her experience of being raped at knife point in LA at age 21 after accepting a ride home from a stranger. A few details are changed in a song, but it's mostly a recounting of that experience. So, um, yeah, I heard you had some stuff to say about this one. My, my note on it goes, oh God, oh God, this is a rape song. Oh God, oh God, oh God. It's a, it's a really heavy topic that's come up, you know, it's 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 a lot to take in and just 
the details she put, she doesn't go into like it's not like graphic details just like scene details she puts in just and the part where she says you can laugh it's funny like it's a it's a song that really disturbs you on a lot of levels and hard to listen to like i'm i'm not able to physically listen to it which is there's been a couple songs like that in the history but this is definitely the one where it's the most intentional in the history of the billy sears club so yeah yeah it it hits you really head on and there like you said not a lot of graphic detail but it is very plain and blunt in the way things are narrated um you get lines about like kind of i guess um just the thought processes going through her head while it was happening you know um just dissociating and thinking of things like visiting the barbados or going to carolina which you know you do whatever you can to block out trauma in the traumatic events in the moment but yeah and there's also a lot of really heavy stuff regarding suicide um going on here you know she speaks to Jesus while contemplates suicide. He says, it's your choice, babe. Just remember, I don't think you'll be back in three days time. So you choose well. And so her mind is definitely going to a bunch of dark places all at once here. So it's, it's, it's a difficult listen. Yeah, it's not necessarily and, one that I can take casually. And also there's a line about victim blaming. Yeah. Yay. Where she says, I wore a slinky red thing. Does that mean I should spread? Which is, oof, yeah. And it's like for you, internalized. Yeah, for you, your friend's father, Mister Ed. And when she says father, is that like her dad, her the father of her friends, or like a pastor? It's it's not giving good options. I think that's intentional, and I don't like to contemplate it very much. <laughs> but yeah yeah it's this is this is the one where as people listening to it you need the most time to brace yourself basically because it's it's a woman talking about her experience with sexual assault and i laugh because that, i'm uncomfortable and it makes me awkward promise there were a I lot mean, of sexual assault survivors in 90s rock like the corn guy Kurt Cobain, I think, I think there was a lot of talk that he was being abused by Courtney Love in some fashion. Right. Right. It's, de it's definitely not, hadn't been spoken about too candidly, though. Yeah. Which is definitely what we got here. Yeah, no, she's uh, talking extensively in interviews uh, about how making this song and, like, her music in general is therapeutic for her trauma, though. This is and, definitely a, um, I guess, a touchstone for her career, you know, being her breakout single and also being probably like one of the best examples of her just using forceful poetic imagery to get across, you know, a shocking message. And she's, and she's been able to do a lot of work with it, like, like I mentioned earlier on, like becoming a spokesperson for the uh, Survivor Network, uh, the Rain. Yeah, Rain. I ran yes. out with two ends and like getting a bunch of people involved with that. Like, that's silence awesome. all these, that, yeah. Silent yeah. all these years. Yeah. Was Moving on. 
Right. Sorry, didn't mean to cut you off. Um, Silent All These Years was used as the, uh, what was it, like the radio ad um, theme, I believe, for Rain back in the 90s when it was first starting off. And Tori was helping to found that. So if we're going to get onto that one. Um, yeah, let's do that. Let's, Silent uh, All These Years is prob it's probably one of the, it's probably like the most abstruse lyrically I track, I think, here. You know, I was definitely struggling a bit with this one, so I'm going to ask for your take on Silent yeah. All These Years. It did take me several lessons, but eventually I got a sense that it was a breakup where the guy moved on and she's a bit in denial about it. Like, yeah, there's a lot of very out there songs, like the Antichrist goes up and like screams at her. But also there are some that are very pointed, like Oh, you got a girl who thinks really deep thoughts. Well, what's so great about really deep thoughts? The Boy, you, best I be <laughs> you, be you better bet I bleed real soon. How's that thought for you? Like, wow, we are not pulling punches. Oh my goodness, right? The Tori yeah, and most experience, everyone. We start off really weird, and then we talk about late periods. <laughs> I mean, there's like a lot of different... I guess disparate metaphorical strains sort of winding their way through this song. There's like that theme that you mentioned of the ant being silenced by the Antichrist in the kitchen, which I guess could be a representative of like childhood, um, like a fam a restrictive family environment, forcing her to silence herself. And there is that also that overarching theme of like being a mermaid and having her voice taken away for so long, being silent all these years, but eventually she hears herself and she can find her voice again. So, and there's like also a lot of existential dread in that bridge about having years go by and having your beauty and voice stripped from you till there's nothing left, you know, running out of time and losing your vitality. Um, but yeah, it's a, I guess if I had to sum it up in one sentence, it's a song about uh, finding and maintaining your own voice and, you know, uh, it, it's, it, th yeah, this one's definitely rather hard to package. Yeah. Really Pretty though. I actually didn't make the connection between the, the mermaid imagery and the little mermaid un right uh -huh. until you mentioned like sort of silence of the voice. One right. thing I did think was interesting was like, what if I'm a mermaid in these jeans of his with her name still on it? Like, mermaids can't wear pants. No, they that's can't. A, that's a really complex metaphor to say this relationship isn't working in Taylor. Again, I feel like it's intentional in some way. But if she because oh wait, wait, wait. What if it's because now her voice has been silent and now that she has it back, she's just gonna say as many words as possible. Exactly. Genius. Right? She's just gonna stall for time. Uh but yeah, no, this one was pretty. It's definitely worthy of being more than just a radio ad. Um, any other, I guess, overall impressions or songs that you wanted to say anything about? A lot, a lot of them, the ones that we haven't touched on, like, uh, Mother and Tear in Your Hand, I was very confused on, but, like, Girl I liked, because, like, it's very clearly, you know, this 
girl who's you know struggling with identity and there's the one part where she starts saying calling my baby and it sounds like mitski uh-huh uh, yeah we talked about that earlier Mix mitski definitely took some inspiration there oh yeah it's she, canon yeah <laughs> but yeah other than that it's you know a very deep very difficult album but one that i start to really enjoy by the end yeah i mean i Again, it's definitely worth doing a discography deep dive. It's this is one of those albums, and I think Tori's generally just one of those artists where you need to sort of like sit and pay attention and let it marinate. You know, you, you it, it, it's not the most accessible music, but it's it's definitely very rewarding. You know, she's a strong yeah. songwriter. She certainly knows how to string a pop melody together, and the composition, especially of some of these like piano melodies, is so intricate. And she gives a really unabashed, head-on treatment of difficult personal trauma and so some pretty relatable existential rumination to boot. So, yeah, anyway, this is one of my favorite albums of recent years, and I'm really glad you liked it. Yeah. Well, I think the little earthquake has settled down and we're back down the Richter scale. Uh, stay tuned for the next part where we talk about fence tables and big fish theory.